and now your co-hosts with the most, with the charm, the savoir-faire, and daring do, that's right, you're listening to Dream Infringement. It's just me, Jennifer, and Emily hosting the show tonight, but we've got a special little episode cooked up just for you. And to introduce our theme, we have a special jingle. Emily, take it away. Krampus and Yule Cats and Yule Logs a burnin' Fruitcake that keeps people's tummies a turnin' Yule Lads that spy on you when you're asleep These are some lesser known Christmassy things Bobby is taking the week off, and Jennifer and I were left to our own devices. We put our heads together, and we thought, what could be a better day than January 18th to talk about some of the origins of Christmas? I can't think of a better day that we could have chosen. And if you think you could have thought of a better day, well, to that I say, when the mood strikes you, you just have to go with it. So that's what we're doing tonight. Um, Jennifer and I, we really love learning about the origins of things and mythology and how people came up with these ideas and the stories that go along with them. And turns out Christmas is chock full of strange things. So, so maybe next year, around the Christmas time, maybe you'll remember some of these funny, strange stories we have to share. Who knows, maybe you won't remember. But maybe you will. this year, I became apprised of the legend of the Yule Cat. It's a tale from Icelandic folklore, which started around the 13th century, based on instilling fear and nightmares into children to get them to behave and do their chores. Later, in the name of Christmas, around the 17th century, where a threat could be good all year long. While in America, it's fairly simple. The folklore goes, bad children get put on the bad children list and will get coal and no presents. For Icelandic kids, it was a very complicated system. Santa may have had some elves and Mrs. Claus and a reindeer posse, but they had nothing on Iceland for threats, truly. You see, the Yule Cat is the family pet of a very large, very despicable family. Let me introduce you to this odd and sadistic cast of characters who all live together in a cave, one big, happy, murderous family. So we'll start with the family pet. The Yule Cat is a huge and vicious cat who lurks around during Christmas time, eating people who have not received any new clothes to wear before Christmas Eve. You have no clothes, and now a cat's going to eat you. You can't catch a break. But apparently the threat was used by farmers as an incentive for their workers to finish processing the autumn wool before Christmas. 
The ones who took part in the work would be rewarded with new clothes. Those who did not would get nothing and become cat food. Moving on to the parents, Gryla and Lepaludi. Gryla is described as a repulsive giantess who likes to eat bad children. Her favorite dish is a stew of naughty kids. The oldest poems describe her as somewhat of a parasitic beggar who walks around asking parents to give her their disobedient children. The modern day version, her abilities have been upgraded and she can just detect bad children without a parent having to volunteer them. Her plans can be thwarted by giving her food or by chasing her away. Originally, she lived in a small cottage, but later on, she appears to have been forced out of town and into a faraway cave, as one does for a giant cannibalistic woman. According to folklore, she has been married three times and has dozens of children with her previous husbands. Her third husband, Lapaludi, is described as lazy, who mostly stays at home in their cave with the cat and their sons, the Yule Lads of which there are 13. Early on, the number and depiction of the Yule Lads varied greatly depending on the location, with each lad ranging from a mere prankster to a homicidal monster who also eats children. But in 1932, a poem called The Yule Lads was published by Icelandic poet Johannes Ur Kotlum, the Yuletide Lads. I know you were hoping for a bit of poetry this evening, so I will commence with the poem. Let me tell the story of the lads of few charms, who once upon a time used to visit our farms. They came from the mountains, as many of you know, in a long single file to the farmsteads below. Kryla was their mother. She gave them ogre milk, and the father Lapaludi a loathsome ilk. They were called the Yuletide lads. At Yuletide they were due and always came one by one and not ever two by two. Thirteen altogether, these gents in their prime, didn't want to irk people all at one time. Creeping up all stealth, they unlocked the door, the kitchen and the pantry they came looking for. They hid where they could, with a cunning look or sneer, ready with their pranks when people weren't near. And even when they were seen, they weren't loath to roam and play their tricks disturbing the peace of the home. The first of them was Sheepcoat Claude. He came stiff as wood to prey upon the farmer's sheep as far as he could. He wished to suck the ooze, but it was no accident. He couldn't. He had stiff knees, not too convenient. The second was Gully Gawk, gray his head and mean. He snuck into the cow barn from his craggy ravine. Hiding in the stalls, he would steal the milk while the milkmaid gave the cowherd a meaningful smile. Stubby was the third called, a stunted little man, who watched for every chance to whisk off a pan, and scurrying away with it, he scraped off the bits that stuck to the bottom and brims his favorites. The fourth was spoon liquor, like spindle he was thin, he felt himself in clover when the cook wasn't in. Then stepping up, he grappled the stirring spoon with glee, holding it with both hands, for it was slippery. Pot Scraper, the fifth one, was a funny sort of chap. When kids were given scrapings, he'd come to the door and tap, and they would rush to see if there was really a guest. Then he'd hurried to the pot and had a scraping fest. 
Bowl liquor, the sixth one, was shockingly ill-bred. From underneath the bedsteads he stuck his ugly head, and when the bulls were left to be licked by dog or cat, he snatched them for himself. He was very good at that. The seventh was door-slammer, a sorry vulgar chap. When people in the twilight would take a little nap, he was happy as a lark with the havoc he could wreak, slamming doors and hearing the hinges on them squeak. Skyer Gobbler the Eighth was an awful stupid bloke. He lambasted the Skyer tub till the lid on it broke. Then he stood there gobbling. His greed was well known. Until about to burst, he would bleat and howl and groan. The ninth was Sausage Swiper, a shifty pilferer. He climbed up to the rafters and raided food from there. Sitting on a crossbeam in soot and in smoke, he fed himself on sausage, fit for gentlefolk. The tenth was Window Peeper, a weird little twit, who stepped up to the window and stole a peek through it. And whatever was inside to which his eye was drawn, he most likely attempted to take later on. Eleventh was Door Sniffer, a doltish lad and gross. He never got a cold, yet had a huge sensitive nose. He caught the scent of lace bread while leagues away still, and ran toward it weightless as wind over dale and hill. Meat Hook, the twelfth one, his talent would display. As soon as he arrived on St. Thorlac's day, he snagged himself a morsel of meat of any sort, although his hook at times was a tiny bit short. The thirteenth was Candlebaker, t'was cold, I believe, if he was not the last of the lot on Christmas Eve. He trailed after the little ones who, like happy sprites, ran about the farm with their fine tallow lights. On Christmas night itself, so a wise man writes, the lads were all restrained and just stared at the lights. Then one by one they trotted off into the frost and snow. On twelfth night the last of the lads used to go. Their footprints in the highlands are faced now for long, and the memories have all turned to image and to song. Whew. That was, that was long. That was long. So, yeah, did you catch all of that? So we have Sheep Coat Claude. He harasses sheep but is impaired by peg legs. Goalie Gawk hides in goalies, and then he sneaks into the cow shed and he steals milk. Stubby uh, steals pans to eat the crust left on them. Spoon Licker steals and licks wooden spoons and is extremely thin due to malnutrition. Pot Scraper steals leftovers from pots. Bull Licker hides under beds waiting for someone to put down their dishes, which he then steals. Door Slammer uh, slams doors. Skyer Gobbler has a great affinity for Skyre, which is similar to yogurt. Sausage Swiper hides in the rafters and steals sausages. Window Peeper, he looks through the windows in search of things to steal. Doorway Sniffer has an acute sense of smell, which he uses to locate carbohydrates. Meat Hook uses a hook to steal meat, and Candle Stealer follows children and then steals their candles, because apparently they're edible. Yes. See, I told you they made this just very overly complicated. I don't like reading books when in the like front section it has like the cast of who everyone is and it goes on for more than one page. Like I don't want to he- have to keep track of all these names. I don't like television shows where there's like 
more than four to six people who are considered the co-stars that I have to track. This this is too many people. You'd have to have like a very thorough calendar to like know when like Meat Hook Guy was coming and Stubby and the Window Peeper and like it's just so amped up. <laughs> I can't imagine like a small child having to like keep track of all of this. Maybe their parents would would let them know like, hey, you better get that wool in. You old cat's coming for you in two days or something. Um, it's just a very complex system. Uh, eventually, the King of Denmark objected to the use of the Yule Lads, Yule Cat, and their odious parents as a disciplinary tool. So, <laughs> I have a feeling like his his nurse, his nursemaid or tutor, used it on him, and he was not having it anymore. He was like, "We're putting an end to it." Strangers in the night. Exchanging glances, wandering in the night. What were the chances? We Give me a K. K. Give me an R. R. Give me an A. A. Give me an M. M. Give me a P. P. Give me a U. U. Give me an S. S. Weston, what does that spell? I, I don't know. <laughs> It spells Krampus. Uh, oh, yeah. And you were actually the first one in our family to take note of Krampus. And maybe our listeners, you know, maybe they don't know who he is. Yeah, yeah. But you're here with me to help explain this other okay, so. odd, odd uh, character. So, Weston, where did you first hear of Krampus? I was browsing around my kids' YouTube, and there's this uh, YouTube channel called The Great Big Story, and it's about really weird things that happen, like different carnivals and like things and like um, politics and stuff. And I just stumbled upon this thing, and it was this really weird, weird like monster-like mask with a giant like tongue sticking out, a snake tongue, a giant snake tongue looking out. And I was like, hmm, what is this? And so people of Europe might find Krampus crawling around in Christmas time. So Krampus is a scary um, monster. It wears some, some people where, like, in Europe they go around town and they whack bad children with their whips and they dress in a wooden mask that looks like a Krampus mask. And then... And then a lamb sheet of wool. They dress in a lamb sheet of wool. They have horns, a whip, a suit of bells, and like a, I mean, a belt of bells. <laughs> a little mishap there. Yes. Weston, he was the first one to uh, notify me and Bobby about Krampus. So maybe we can talk, I can tell you some of the historical things. Mm-hmm. The historical significance. Mm -hmm. Like, how did Krampus become Krampus? Some of it begins with St. Nicholas. Yes. Um, so in mm -hmm. Catholicism, St. Nicholas is the patron saint of children. And his saint's day falls in early December. And that uh, correlates with the Yuletide season. So it kind of just got mashed up together into one. All of it? 
Yeah. So a lot of European cultures really welcomed St. Nicholas because, you know, who doesn't like jolly, jolly Saint Saint, men that Saint man <laughs> take care of kids, <laughs> I guess. And give bad kids but, their coal. But they also were afraid of his counterparts. So there were parts of Germany and Austria, and that's where Krampus comes in. Um, and then there's in other counterparts that are also evil, Belsnickel and Knecht Ruprecht. Those are bearded men who also carry switches to yeah. beat children. Why is there only one good guy, but there's like three bad guys? All right. Well, do you want to know where Krampus's name came from? Mm-hmm. Well, it came from the German word Krampen meaning claw, and it's said to be the son of Hel, H-E-L, in Norse mythology. It shares other characteristics with other creatures in Greek mythology, including satyrs and fauns. What's a satyr? Well, we'll talk about that on another episode. According to folklore, Krampus shows up in towns the night of December 5th, and that night is known as Krampusnacht, or Krampus Night. Krampus night. Mm-hmm. And the next day, December 6th, was Nicholas, Nikolaus Tag, or St. Nicholas Day. And that's when children would look outside their door to see if their shoes or their boot they'd left out had presents as a reward for good behavior or a rod bad behavior. For bad behavior. Now, in modern times, people, they're still uh, living it up with Krampus. Yeah. Um, they <laughs> have... Traditions in Austria, Germany, Hungary, Slovenia, and the Czech Republic, which involves drunken men dressed as devils who take over the streets for a Krampuslauf, which means Krampus run, and they chase people through the streets. Weston, you did a really good job describing um Krampus what he looked like but I'm gonna I'm gonna give some more details because this is a audio medium and people can't see it unless they looked it up and so Krampus is a horned half goat and he is often described to have really large horns a thick furry body massive hooves and the devil's eyes he is often seen wearing and or carrying baskets full of birch sticks chains horsehair and he can breathe fire so just a real fun guy yeah just a real fun guy to let your kids go around just some kids in europe might be screaming and yelling right now the things that he carries also have significant meanings too. So the metal chains signify the Christian phrase of binding the devil. The wrapped birch twigs were commonly used during witchcraft initiations. And there's Krampus schnapps, which is a strongly brewed batch of fruit brandy because... What's fruit brandy? It's like alcohol. Oh. Because I guess... When you're, it's Krampus knocked, you gotta celebrate, you gotta, live it up, you gotta get your brandy out. In the region of Syria, they have wrapped um, twigs on all the household, households called rutin bundles, and they are often presented by Krampus to families in that area. They are spray-painted gold, and they are to be put on display in the family household for the entire year. 
And why is that, you may ask? It's because this gold bundle of birch twigs will remind all the children that Krampus is never far away and will always know when you've done something naughty. So it's a really interesting parenting technique that I don't know that I can get behind. Um, what about you, Weston? Do you think that this is a good good parenting technique to make up a terrifying mythical creature and scare your children into submission? Um, no, I don't. And on that note, have a good night, Weston. Sweet dreams. Okay, Just kidding. I'll go back to bed, Mom. <laughs> I'll go back to bed. Good no thank you weston for helping me talk about krampus you are very welcome i'm gonna see my dad downstairs and watch twilight zone sweet Imagine, long time ago, you were a young child living in Wales, and it's a chill, cold, snowy winter day that's just turning to dusk. I remember when the Mary Lloyd came. I first noticed the scratching at the door, and then the knocking. Me, Tad, and Mom, they opened the door with just a little... And I could hear the group of people outside. It was noisy, and they began to challenge my Tad. And I saw my dad falter at the doorstep. And suddenly the door burst open wide, and there it was. It was a giant skeleton horse with big glassy eyes, its jaw cavernous and biting, its movements erratic, and it floated like a ghost. And then in rushed the others, and they were all so loud. And the ghost horse, it chased my sister. And a tall man with bright ribbons tied all over his fine clothes. He came in with a whip and a harness, and he tried to hold back the terrifying ghost horse, but he failed. And it chased my sister. And she screamed and ran right towards the dinner table. And suddenly, the ghost horse developed hands, and everyone started singing. And then I realized it was just a horse skull mounted on a stick. And the man wiped my tears, and my tad clapped me on the back, and I'll never forget the first time I saw the Mary Lloyd. Yes, you've just had your yearly visit from the Mary Lloyd. A Welsh tradition that has endured centuries and is still ongoing. They don't know exactly how it started, only that it's a pagan ritual that was later given kind of a veneer of Christianity and has become a mostly Christmas tradition. So generally, this tradition takes place around Christmas and New Year's, sometimes also in Midsummer or Halloween. Dates really varied between villages. Sometimes it went on for several consecutive nights and tended to begin at dusk and it often lasted into the night. I kind of think that it depended on how much free food people wanted. I mean, basically you showed up, barged in, ate their food. So the skull of a horse is 
decorated with bells and ribbons and is mounted on a stick beneath like a sackcloth or white sheet and it would challenge the neighbors to a dialogue um, in matching rhymes until the undead mayor is let in in exchange for much food and drink. In recent times, they have traded out old glass bottle eyes for Christmas ornaments, and it also has a spring-loaded jaw so that its mouth moves, and I can tell you from the pictures, it is terrifying. There's an account from Gower that said that the head was kept buried throughout the year, only being dug up for use during the Christmas season. And I don't know why they had to bury it. I just have a mental image of someone being like, oh, hey, don't forget to dig up the horse school for Christmas. <laughs> um, the Mary Lloyd party consisted of four to seven men who had very colorful ribbons and just a lot of things attached to their clothes. And then there was a smartly dressed leader who carried a staff, stick, or whip, and and it could include the merry man who played music and then punch and judy both played by men with blackened faces also brightly dressed um, punch carried a long metal fire iron and judy had a broom when they got to a house to terrify punch would start tapping the ground to the rhythm of the music and rapping on the door with a poker while judy would brush the ground house walls and windows with a broom they would start to sing out a challenge to people inside before performing a sort of call and response that was called the punko. Anyone inside the house was tasked with replying in a rhyme. I just call it a, a rap battle um, where they tried to be wittier than the Mary Lloyd and then after everyone was allowed inside and given food and drink before heading to the next house. And as a side note, householders had to make Punch promise that he would not touch their fireplace before he entered. Otherwise, it was the local custom that before he left, he would rake out the fire with his poker. I don't understand this. It seems kind of like a fire hazard. Like you just eat this family's food and then ruin their fire when you leave. That's not very nice. Um, once inside, the Mary Lloyd would run around, neighing, snapping its jaws, terrifying children and adults alike, while the leader pretended to restrain it, and the Mary Man played music and entertained the householder. The videos are terrifying. I'm glad that this custom never took off in the United States. My cat has been crawling in the back the whole time. Oh, Quinny, it's okay. The smell of redwood giants A banquet for the shadows Horse night With dancers in the Fruitcake is the holiday cake that a lot of people, they love to hate on it. And you might think that its roots are in England, which you would be partially correct, but it actually originated in ancient Roman times. And the ancient Romans would make it out of a mix of pine nuts, barley mash, pomegranate seeds, raisins, and honeyed wine. 
and then it was shaped into a cake and it was called satura which in latin means mixed dish so the satura or you know the ancient romans fruit cake was really easy to carry around and it lasted for a long time without going bad and Roman soldiers would bring it into the battlefields as a snack. If we fast forward a little bit into Shakespearean times, we will now find a traditional fruit cake included meat. Yes, meat. Um, it had meat, wine, sherry, fruit juices, sugar, and some preserved fruits. After a while though, meat was eliminated from fruit cakes and then more fruit was added in its place and then it became known as plum pudding and basically just a plum cake. So the modern fruit cake that we know today, it, it changed, changed a little bit uh, through time and we can trace it back to the Middle Ages and during the 16th century, sugar became cheaper, Europeans realized they could use it to preserve fruits and they began soaking fruits in sugar basically just drying them out, and then all that sugar-soaked fruit was added to fruitcake. And then it was around this time, the Middle Ages, that nuts were added as well. Oh, then fruitcake, poor fruitcake, it got outlawed. But not because people didn't like it, it's because people thought it tasted a little too good. So in the 18th century, fruitcake, which was then known as plum cakes, they were outlawed throughout continental Europe for being sinfully rich. You know, meanwhile, Krampus is just like <laughs> whacking children and Mary Lloyd is doing all kinds of crazy things, but not fruitcake. No, we need to get rid of that. That's sinfully rich. It's too good. Sorry, I went on a tangent. Okay, so fruitcake was, was outlawed um, and then uh, it didn't last long though. And then it came back and it became super popular. Take that outlaw uh, outlaws and then in the 1800s people would put it under their pillows so it was customary in england for unmarried wedding guests to put a slice of fruit cake under their pillow at night so they could dream about the person they would eventually marry Ooh, the connection was that fruit cake was traditionally the kind of cake served at british weddings fruit cake gets served at special occasions for the british royal family fruitcake is still a pretty special cake in England. In Victorian England, when fruitcake was just super popular, enjoying its moment in the spotlight after being banned, it's, you know, it's being loud and proud, it became the special occasion cake for British royals. In Queen Victoria, when she married Prince Albert, Albert she waited a whole year to eat a slice of her fruitcake to show her restraint. And then when Princess Diana married Prince Charles, they served fruitcake at their wedding. And Kate Middleton and Prince William also had fruitcake at their wedding too. So how did it get here in America? Well, it was the British colonists that brought fruitcake over to America, and it became especially popular in places that didn't have a lot of access to fresh fruit because you didn't need fresh fruit to make it. There were two locations that became known for fruitcake. There was Collins Street Bakery in Corsicana, Texas, and Claxton Bakery in Claxton, Georgia. They began adding more nuts because nuts were a lot cheaper in those areas. 
And then in 1913, mail-order fruitcakes hit the market. So the Collins Street Bakery, which was in Texas, um, it's still one of the leading fruitcake producers. And this is still a really popular way to buy and send fruitcake. So the bakery that helped start it all ships it all over the world. Fruitcake was even brought to the moon in 1969. Uh, Pineapple fruitcake was brought on the Apollo 11 space mission, but no one ate it. (laughs) And you can still get a, you can still look at that fruitcake because it's on display at the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. I mean, isn't that like true fruitcake style? You take it with you and then you're not a Roman soldier, so you just you know, you don't eat it. Johnny Carson is the one who started poking fun at fruitcake. He made a joke during the 1960s on an episode of The Tonight Show where he said the worst Christmas gift is fruitcake. There is only one fruitcake in the entire world. People keep sending it to each other. Ha ha ha. Then it became tradition for Carson to make fun of it every year around the holidays. No one really knows how it became associated with Christmas. It's still a mystery, and there are versions of fruitcake all over the world. So in order for something to be considered fruitcake, it has to include dried fruit, nuts, and alcohol. So there's just a lot of versions of this. Um, In Germany, there's Stalin, a popular fruitcake like bread served during the holidays, and in Jamaica there is a rum-soaked black cake. So now you know some of the origins of fruitcake. You can't have your fruitcake and eat it too. There's the Yule Log tradition, and then there's the Yule Log tradition. The Caca Tio, or Tio di Nadal, a Catalan tradition. The origins of Caca Tio is a pagan tradition celebrating the winter solstice. Back in the day, in rural villages, Catalans would choose a large tree trunk to set a flame in a bonfire. They'd burn it throughout the winter and honor it as Tio de Nadal. At some point, that tradition evolved into families finding a log in the woods, bringing it home, covering it with a blanket, and caring for it very lovingly. But this was not unselfish love given freely to a small fallen log in the forest. Tio was expected to give back. These days, cockatillo starts popping up in the markets around the beginning of December. It looks like a hollowed out log about 30 centimeters long with a drawn on face that has a big smile. It has a little red hat. Um, It's also been given stick legs, so one end is higher than the other. And beginning with the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, December 8th, One gives the Tio a little bit to eat every night and keeps him covered with a blanket to keep him warm. 
children are tasked to take good care of the log. They have to keep it warm, they have to feed it so that it will defecate presents on Christmas Day or Christmas Eve. If you had a nice big fireplace, one puts the TO partly in the fireplace and orders it to defecate. If you don't have a fireplace, you just beat it with sticks and you sing a song that goes something like, Poop log, log of Christmas. Don't poop salted herring. They are too salty. Poop torons. They are much better. But before the children descend upon the log, they have to leave the room. They go to another part of the house to pray. If they aren't a praying kind of family, they'll go to the kitchen to warm up their log beating sticks. Meanwhile, the parents put presents under the blanket, which after the log is beaten, they pull the blanket back like, ta-da, there's gifts for the whole family. This tradition seems odd in many ways. I feel like there could be an easier way, like take care of the log and you wake up on Christmas Eve and there's like gifts around it or something. Like I don't know why there has to be so much violence and then it has to defecate the gifts. But maybe they do it because like as a child, those things are kind of fun and funny. It defecated you a gift. Like it's got kind of that mischievous weirdness that appeals to children. So maybe that's how it happened. And plus in the winter, the family is like all cooped up in a house. And that's like a really good distraction for kids. Like here, take care of the log. Did you feed the log? Stop bothering me. Go make sure the log is warm. And then the go beat the log and sing songs. And you know, it is a place which you can harness a lot of childlike energy away from you, <laughs> distract them with something else, which maybe was beneficial. I know for myself as a child, I don't think I could have taken care of something like that for that long and then be expected to abuse it. But, you know, maybe the payoff was considered very much worth it. So there you go. The tradition of the cockatiel. Like a forest, dark of the unknown. Love is like a promise that you never be alone. Well, that's it for our show this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. We really appreciate it. And if you want more dream infringement, but you can't wait until next Monday, you can go to our Facebook page. We're just Dream Infringement. You can go to our Instagram page, also just Dream Infringement. And I encourage you to also go to kskq.org to check out the other awesome shows and our little community radio here down in Southern Oregon. And stick around for Leo with High Tech Soul. Thanks so much, everyone. You've been a lovely audience. Good night. Good night. Good night to you over there. And you there too. Cause it's a bit of sweet symphony.